I just would hold that over history, much of history, certainly all over our own and down to the present, there has been a drastic imbalance of power and influence between the sexes. Women have been dominated and forced into a secondary position by men and have had little or no direct control over the larger life or direction of the city, state, nation, or now the world. We are, you see, at a very peculiar moment in history. The old framework. We're trying to understand the evil that's abroad. Science itself has become a problem. Now we have bigger problems. We are conserving survival. Is it possible to care for each other more? What must be done now to overcome the on a rocky outcropping off the northeastern coast of England, the monastery of Lindisfarne once stood as an outpost of religious, philosophic, and intellectual study against the dark times of medieval Europe. Inspired by the foresight and dogged determination of these medieval monks, William Irwin Thompson founded the Lindisfarne Association in 1972 to gather together old scientists, scholars, artists, and contemplatives to realize a new planetary culture in the face of the political, cultural, and environmental crises of the 20th century. The Lindisfarne tapes represent some of the most visionary thinking of the time, drawing connections between culture, economics, society, and technology. While the germs of new ideas contained in these tapes are now beginning to take root, they remain an invaluable source of speculative thinking that will continue to inspire our visions of a more just and regenerative future. In this Lindisfarne lecture, Nancy Jack Todd, editor of the New Alchemy Journal, outlines the dangers of a patriarchal society and describes the cultural changes necessary for gender equality, while emphasizing the central role that women themselves play in shifting culture for the better. I guess the first thing I want to say to put what I prepared in advance into context of the conference, and I prepared it in advance because I didn't know if when faced with such an august body I would be able to remember all the things that I definitely did want to say. So I'm going to have to read from what I wrote in advance, but to put it in this time and place as it's already taken place is to say that I feel my feminism springs from the place Janet described this morning as an outcry, as a bearer of life against what I feel to be a threat to life. And the political ramifications are ramifications from that level. Oh, well, okay. Uh, my favorite of all introductory phrases is one that was used by Gregory last year when he began his talk by saying, the thing of it is, well, when Bill suggested, when Bill suggested the role of women in cultural change as the title for my talk, it seemed to serve as well as any, and I've stayed with it. But the thing of it is that as far as I can see, except in a very limited sense, like more doctors and lawyers and equal opportunity, it doesn't make sense to me in itself, because if 
the changing role of women is to mean anything at all. It must be seen as a part of process. And as such, it's now pretty hard to predict or to pin down from where we stand now. With the thought of speaking here looming large all summer, I've spent a lot of time in what is a very broad field of thinking what to cover. Ticking away somewhere in the back of my mind were some of Stuart Brand's criteria. His interest in material that's new, that actually comes as news. I also kept hearing another one of my favorite Brandisms, which is, how central is your service? Well, I'm not at all sure I'll be able to offer people here at Lindisfarne anything they would actually consider new. I should like to try to articulate some of the things I don't think have been generally completely heard. That's rather than, than, than offer something that's completely new. Because even in enlightened circles, circles, the issue of sexism is still extant, and sooner or later it's going to have to be dealt with. Which brings me to how central is your service. I want very much for you to understand that I don't think that the sexual issue is the singular issue of the day. I don't. There's too much hunger and pain and injustice and violence and human and environmental exploitation to claim priority for sexism as the single cause of our woes. But if we are, and I think many of us here feel that this may be so, at some kind of watershed in human development that we are in many ways, in Bill's phrase, at the edge of history, then I am convinced that we shan't evolve much farther until we've faced the issue of feminine-masculine dichotomy, both within ourselves as individuals and between the sexes. If one were to use the metaphor of a mandala for human consciousness, this question is a facet that must be better understood one focus towards the completion of the whole. There are many others, religion, meditation, cybernetics, art, biology, ecology. Working on the feminine-masculine dichotomy is the particular piece that I shall try to bring to the puzzle toward what has been called the realization of the human self. I guess at this point, it would be appropriate to make some statement of, pop, of position but mine really is neither unique nor new, so I really don't want to spend much time on this. I just would hold that over history, much of history, certainly all over our own and down to the present, there has been a drastic imbalance of power and influence between the sexes. Women have been dominated and forced into a secondary position by men and have had little or no direct control over the larger life or direction of the city, state, nation, or now the world. Granted, Control that men have is dubious and confined to a very few, but it's still men in the main, not women who have the power and are doing whatever it is that's being done, however badly. Um, over this past summer, partly spurred by the challenge of this talk and partly because it's important to me, I've spent a lot of time talking to my friends, male and female, sometimes just in conversation and sometimes in discussion groups. We've had several such discussions or workshops on Farm Saturdays at New Alchemy. Under the rubric of implications of alternatives, we've ranged from food raising and eating habits to political decentralization to sex roles. And it's, it's nice to have a workshop on sex roles sharing billing with such topics as closed aquaculture systems, cage culture, pest control in the garden, and windmills. It's nice because besides being about the other things that we do, human communication is one of the things that I want New Alchemy to be about. 
One of my good friends, Ruth Hubbard, participated in several of these discussions. She's a biologist, and she's the ninth woman in the history of Harvard to receive tenure, tenure there. I think there are 10 now. Uh, she has posed a question, which I'd like to use as a starting point. The question that she's been dealing with, both with herself and with her colleagues and with her students this year, has been, are there, beyond the obvious genital ones, innate differences between the sexes? It's Ruth's feeling, and one that I've not heard satisfactorily disproved so far, that within each sex, the ranges are so great in everything ranging from an intelligence to aggressiveness, nurturing ability, passiveness, even hormonal levels, that to assign innate characteristics to one sex or the other is fallacious. Because, as she points out, culturization or socialization begins so early, there's almost no way of knowing whether a characteristic is innate or not. Almost universally, the first pronouncement made about any of us is whether we're male or female. And almost from then on, this has some bearing. She talks about films which have been made, which she's seen, um, made of doctors and nurses and parents, all handling and caring for babies. Um, it's been very carefully controlled. No indication is given verbally of the sex of the baby. And the audience has been asked to guess the sex of the baby. And apparently, just from watching them, handling them, people always know the audience scores are infallibly correct as to whether the baby is a boy or a girl. I was very guilty of this as myself as a parent. I always called my little girls rosebuds, and my son was a pony, something active. Um, Ruth's favorite, um, favorite model will be when she hears of a mother coo of a very active toddler that I just can't keep up with her. She's, oh, girl. Um, okay, conversely, there have been studies shown that when because of some genital abnormality, a child is assumed to be one sex and then later found to be another, and usually this is a male, uh, well, usually, and, and then a correction is made in the child's sex by surgery, and usually the pattern goes that it's a male child who's made female for obvious reasons, um, that with surgery, the transition for the child can be relatively successful and untraumatic if the other factors of the child's environment and treatment remain constant, and if the change can be made before the child is 18 months or the age of verbalization. And the point of this for all of us was even development up to 18 months does not mold one irrevocably into behavior patterns as one sex or another. And the point of all this for, for all of us for over the summer and this evening is to ask what exactly biology has to tell us about sexual differences beyond what we already know, and therefore indirectly sex roles and the way we conduct our lives. And so far, there doesn't seem to be much that indicates that women are innately less intelligent or capable or barring physical strength in any way secondary solely by reason of their sex. I don't want to belabor this point, nor do I want to spend much time in probing the question as to why, if women are not innately inferior or secondary, we have been in that position for so long. I think that until just recently, biology has been destiny, to a degree, making a passive role much more probable. Merely reproducing tends to keep one well occupied. 
it's time-consuming, can be debilitating, and gives less freedom to stray far from home. There is, though, a fringe benefit, apart from what I still consider the joy of having and being with young children. And that is that with the moon cycles of menstruation and the experiences of pregnancy, birth, and nursing a child, it is harder to overlook the immanental aspect of the human experience within the larger natural order. One is too close to it, too connected, if you like. For males, life has dictated that they cope more with fo forces that are outside themselves and in the environment. This, when success successful, can lead to a sense of mastery of the environment, transcendence even. This experience has characterized the, female, the male experience in the main more than it has the female. To this largely intuitive explanation of the relative positions of the sexes, one might add that as history has been written by men, we really don't know much about when, what women were doing besides having babies, gathering, gardening, cooking, and keeping house all this time. And many women that I've talked to are waiting for Elise Boulding's book called The Underside of History, which is to be about just that, what women were doing all this time. And they're waiting rather the way devotees of the soap opera await the next installment with a kind of desperate involvement. There is a rather satisfying, if vindictive, poem which fits in too well right here for me to resist it. And because I think it does encapsulate one way, granted a rather narrow fo focus, of looking at historical sexual relations, I would like to read it to you now. It's by an Australian poet called Judith Wright, and it's called Eve to Her Daughters. It was not I who began it. Turned out into drafty caves, hungry so often, having to work for our bread, hearing the children whining, I was nevertheless not unhappy. Where Adam went, I was fairly contented to go. I adapted myself to the punishment. It was my life. But Adam, you know, he kept on brooding over the insult, over the trick they had played on us, over the scolding. He had discovered a flaw in himself, and he had to make up for it. Outside Eden, the earth was imperfect. The seasons changed. The game was fleet-footed. He had to, uh, to work for our living, and he didn't like it. He even complained of my cooking. It was hard to compete with Eden. So he set to work. The earth must be made a new Eden, with central heating, domesticated animals, mechanical harvesters, combustion engines, escalators, refrigerators, and modern means of communication, and, and multiplied opportunities for safe investment and higher education for Abel and Cain and the rest of the family. You can see how his pride had been hurt. In the process, he had to unravel everything because he believed that mechanism was the whole secret. He was always mechanical-minded. He got to the very inside of the whole machine, exclaiming as he went, so this is how it works. And now that I know how it works, why, I must have invented it. As for God and the other, they cannot be demonstrated. And what cannot be demonstrated doesn't exist you see, he had always been jealous. Yes, he got to the center, where nothing at all can be demonstrated, and clearly he doesn't exist. But he refuses to accept the conclusion. You see, he was always an egotist. It was warmer than this in the cave. There was none of this fallout. I would suggest for the sake of the children that it's time you took over. But you are my daughters. You inherit my own faults of character. You are submissive, following Adam, even beyond existence. 
faults of character have their own logic, and it always works out. I have observed this with Abel and Cain. Perhaps the whole elaborate fable right from the beginning is meant to demonstrate this. Perhaps it's the whole secret. Perhaps nothing exists but our faults. At least they can be demonstrated. But it's useless to make, make such a suggestion to Adam. He has turned himself into God who is faultless and doesn't exist. I don't want that to be, to be a historical account at all. That's one view. Fair one, but there are others. Uh, things are starting to change now very rapidly. And according to something that Hazel wrote that I saw in the CQ, Lester Brown has said that the women's revolution may be the most profound and least studied phenomenon of our time. Not discounting the struggles of women over the last hundred years, for a wide variety of reasons, the movement is becoming increasingly widespread right now. One basis for this which has occurred to me is that perhaps over time, the trade-off for male domination has been protection. Superior male strength, which is certainly the norm, has for a long time been the best shield against the harshness of the physical environment, dangerous animals, and the attacks of other males. But it's no use at all against ICBMs or B-70s or radioactivity or hydrogen bombs. Male dominance is now dependent on machines. And so female complicity, which has so long been the rule, is no longer so advantageous to the survival of oneself or one's children. The paradigms of sexual relations are shifting. What I should like to try to get at now is what seems to me the pivotal, pivotal point around which the male domination of women currently revolves in our society. And I do realize that other societies don't find themselves in the same position. I think that the biggest wound in the feminine psyche is the implication that a woman on her own, without a man, is somehow incomplete, not quite a whole being. That she, she does not have in herself the qualities to claim a fully human identity. This can be illustrated in so many ways. It's hard to know what examples to use. I um, think some of these on the board help. Um, when you ask most women to, do, to define themselves or introduce themselves, they will do so not nearly as invariably now as they used to, but in terms of their relation to other people, as a daughter, a wife, a mother. This is superbly portrayed in Ingmar Bergman's scene from a marriage. A couple is being interviewed, and the husband chats on composedly, at some length, about himself, his background, his education, and his work. Then his wife is, when his wife is asked about herself, she becomes very flustered. She says she doesn't know what to say, that she, she, she really doesn't have anything to say. Well, she's so-and-so's wife, and these are her children. She doesn't come on with any kind of statement of who she is. How many men, when being introduced in public, hear the identity, position, and distinction of their wives listed with a glowing comment on their fatherliness? Yet married women very frequently sit through hearing themselves identified as their husbands' wives. Who would deny full credentials to some of the very impressive women who are surfacing these days? But as a friend of mine once said when discussing the achievements of exceptional women, there's no point in having a society where you have to be remarkable in order to get ordinary things. Surely recognition of one's identity is an ordinary thing. It is for men. And yet even brilliant women have had to struggle hard to achieve that, 
not only from others, but within themselves. I have a story that illustrates this point so well that it's almost embarrassing. It's true. It happened to me a year ago this summer at New Alchemy on a farm Saturday, which was terribly hot. And most of our people were away at a conference. I may have been the only woman there. By the co coincidence, and it was that at the rotation of jobs that week, I didn't give a talk, but I organized and served the lunch. Then I served my own plate, and I surveyed the lawn to see what group of visitors seemed neglected. There was a group of eight or so women of assorted ages sitting on the grass in the shade, and I headed for them. They greeted me very warmly, and a pleasant, sporty-looking, gray-haired lady asked, indicating the various men of the group with a wave of her hand, and who are you with? And so thorough has been my own conditioning that I started to look around in response to her question. And then the scales from my, fell from my eyes. And I said, why do you ask me who I'm with? Why don't you ask me who I am? I think this kind of attitude, which is very deep-rooted, deep is not nearly so prevalent as it was in her time or in mine, but it still exists. My favorite courage, current image of the process which seems to take place sometime rather early in the lives of girls and women is that of a type of tree pruning, which you see in France called pollarding. The tree is allowed to just to grow to a reasonable height. Then it's abruptly cut, just as one, expect, just as one expects it to branch. And instead of the continuance of the natural branches, branches, the tree is crowned with a growth of sticks, so that it looks rather like a whisk broom. In my own life, I can look at photographs of myself at 10, and having had a close to ideal early childhood, the face that looks back at me is one of enormous self-assurance, bordering on smugness. I like that me. I could run faster than any boy in my class, and I got higher marks. The face in the photograph, by the time I was told, had begun to take on an excruciating self-consciousness. Not that adolescence isn't hard for everybody, but I was a child with a woman's body, and people wouldn't leave me alone. They touched me and poked me and made comments about me, and I wished that I was invisible. I, couldn't, I no longer belonged to myself, and I didn't run anymore because people would look at me. Somewhere, somehow along the line, most girls receive some kind of warning, often unspoken, that the direction in which they are developing won't do. This is how one well-known feminist describes it. From the earliest time I can remember, I was outraged at everything I saw that distinguished boys from girls, men from women. I thought of it constantly. I was in a fury from the time I was a little girl. Nothing was ever said, nothing at all. It's so curious that things were accepted. It was accepted that women should do this or that. I suppose it probably represents some strange kind of privilege to feel that mad at the limits of what you're given. There was no guilt. It was fury that things I had seen weren't borne out. Anyway, I wasn't raised seeing women do things, so I didn't have any illusions, although people didn't talk as if there was supposed to be a great difference. They were careful about that, as though they had been accomplished, all the changes. It was not at all fashionable to talk about the political meaning of the differences in the levels. I was simply told, if I was asked why I couldn't do certain things, I saw my brothers, both older and younger, do, because you're a girl. And that's that, and nothing more than that, nothing. So there's this tremendous background that you fill in for yourself about what it turns out to mean, because you're a girl. What I'm leading up to is an issue that has been raised before, but I really do think it's important enough to go over it one more time 
because I think it either is often unheard or not completely understood. And the issue is, you know, the continued use of the generic term man to denote all human beings. To many women and to some men, to persist in saying man or mankind when humanity is what is meant is to perpetuate an insult, an injury. It is to continue to enforce the image of woman as secondary, as adjuncts to men, as not quite human beings. I'm aware that most men and many women think that this is quibbling and don't quite understand what the fuss is about. That's why I used as many anecdotes as I did. There's for me a sudden thump of pain when somebody I like or respect intellectually uses the term, often unconsciously, almost always unconsciously, because I know that there's an enormous gap in awareness and therefore communication that will be very difficult and maybe impossible to cross. And the odd thing is that it's quite easy to change, at least in most cases. Some men have altered their speech largely to humor their feminist friends. With time, merely consciously changing their speech habits, one can, after all, learn a language, has led to an understanding of the underlying issue. They begin to see the terminology for what it is, the semantic tip of the cultural iceberg, and as such, the most constantly used tool for the continued subjugation of women, and so thoroughly ingrained that most of us, of both sexes, are completely unaware of it. It's been suggested to me by a friend that with time and gradually achieved equality, the language will follow ideas in advance. This probably will occur. But I do think, at least in this case, that ideas will also follow or perhaps be spurred on by language and that it is very important to try. Is it that important? Granted, it's a tired, unhappy, messy world, and that has been largely man's doing. Would we do better? I used to think so. I guess I was a female chauvinist. I don't anymore. Because I don't think we can know what women will do when, if ever, they achieve equal power. I don't accept that there is that much difference. Yet I don't expect that I have to tell a group such as this of the injustices women have suffered and continue to suffer at the hands of men as the result of their unequal status, or of the struggle for rights in everything from employment to self-definition, which is hard won and ongoing, with the end nowhere in sight. We are at the best at the end of the beginning. I should rather say, without intending to do so as a threat, that to allow this imbalance in sexual relations to continue is dangerous for all of us. It's dangerous for men because to be an oppressor of others is self-destructive, based on a fear of what the dominated will do, given their freedom. This is one reaction I frequently observe in men. What if women get control? Well, what if they do? Most feminists that I know don't particularly want control, but they do want a voice. It is true that some men have something to lose, especially, especially if they have a lot of power. But a shake-up in distribution is a high priority in a lot of fields these days anyway. It is my feeling that relating to women as equals is enriching rather than threatening for men. At New Alchemy, in the main, we've reached this stage, and we're much better for it. As for women, I think that continued domination could result in an ever-growing frustration and anger, which has enormous destructive potential. This is very well personified in Ibsen's Hedda Gabler. I'm not sure that in a, such a critical time, the world can absorb that amount of negative emotion, because it's very powerful. Some of the old saws are not without truth, and I think that hell hath no fury could be updated to hell hath no fury like women scorned.
for both sexes the bother of undergoing the rather painful passage of self-analysis and transition on this subject is worth doing. Whether it is actions or attitudes or speech, I think the world is really the sum of our individual acts. And in that we come to terms with this aspect of the human problem in our own lives, the world is minutely better off. There's a, what I think is a good illustration of this by Doris Lessing in The Golden Notebook. And I'd like to read it to you because it seems to me to describe a peculiarly feminine hold on sanity, which, well, it just articulates it much better than I possibly can. It's about the heroine, Anna. It says, it occurred to her that she was going mad, that this was the breakdown she had foreseen, the crack up. Yet it did not seem to her that she was even slightly mad, but rather that people who were not as obsessed as she was with the inchoate world mirrored in newspapers were all out of touch with an awful necessity. Yet she knew she was mad. And while she could not prevent herself from the careful, obsessed busyness of reading masses of print and cutting out pieces and pinning them all over her walls, she knew that on the day Janet, her daughter, came from school, she would become Anna, Anna the responsible, and the obsession would go away. She knew that Janet's mother, being sane and responsible, was far more important than the necessity of understanding the world, and one thing depended on the other. The world would never get itself understood, be ordered by words, be named, unless Janet's mother remained a woman who was able to be responsible. This seems to me a particular hold on sanity open to women or to anyone who has themsel allows themselves to become involved with a living system, which could bring me to the biological metaphor, but I'd be getting ahead of myself. I've heard Baker Roshi say that one can only meditate and sweep the temple. It seems to me that heightened attentiveness to the immediate acts and effects of one's life are somehow analogous to sweeping the temple. Harking back to my title for just a few minutes, there is something specific that I should like to say about the role of women in cultural change, something concrete. I've heard Marcus Raskin of the Institute for Policy Studies voice the theory that the revolution that so many of us talked about in the late 60s has in many ways happened. Although the interlocking directorates of industry, government, and the military, you know, the whole military-industrial complex thing, still hold full sway at the top, representing themselves, that underneath there has been a resurgence of a very healthy kind of subculture, which is a ge genuine democracy. It surfaced mainly at the community level and is truly representative of local interests. And one interesting aspect of this growing decentralism is the large part that's being played by women. And it's occurred to me with relation to all this that as over history, a major role played by women has been as transmitters of culture, instructing the children in the attitudes and the values of their society, then an equally important role for us now lies in the refusal to be transmitters of a culture that we can no longer accept. There is general agreement among my feminist friends that a fitting question to ask oneself in relation to one's society is, what can I, as an individual, contribute? But if one is not accepted as an individual, and this is the part on which they feel very strongly, then getting recognition of that fact or right has priority. And this is something I'm getting fairly steady feedback from my feminist friends on. And then after gaining that right, the next step 
is communicating to and gaining it for other women. And that until that is accomplished, our all over societal impact will be ineffectual or at best, as it always has been, indirect. However, if one considers Marcus Raskin's analysis of a sort of sub-life in politics thriving beneath the apex of the power structure, then I see nothing incompatible between the goals of feminism, as I understand them now, and political activism working simultaneously on this level. Increasing leverage and control at local levels is one way for women to enter in increasing numbers into public life. I think of women in anti-nuclear groups, in women's lobbies, in neighborhood government and block organizations, in educational groups, in, in food and craft co-ops, and in health and childcare clinics. My favorite analogy <coughs> for this type of activism vis-a-vis -vis the power structure is of pulling a plug or of crumbling the base of a pyramid. And I see New Alchemy's political role as providing tools in the way of energy, food, and shelter for a more decentralized political and economic life. Fitting in just above what some of us heard Scott Burns' concepts of a home-based economy, a community-based economy. Um, I could go on about this because it's awfully interesting, but it's off the main thing I want to say about women, and I think we'll perhaps cover it in some of the other talks. So that um, I just want to close off this aspect of the talk with by saying, copying a quote, that um, in spite of the suicidal thrust of the dominant powers of our society, I do see in the combination of political and uh, decentralized techno technology that we're, on the other hand, confronted with insurmountable opportunities. Um, there is one more level I'd like to touch on. But I do so with some trepidation, because I know that some of my feminist friends will feel that I'm betraying our cause by perpetuating a stereotype. And it is stereotyping as such that creates a response of very bitter resentment. So while I've, what I've said up until now represents something of a composite view of my friends as feminists, what follows does not necessarily do so. I'm on my own. Um, for as long as we can know, there have been characteristics that have been thought of as feminine or masculine, or if you will, associated with what might be called feminine and masculine principles. These span culture and time broadly enough to warrant more consideration than occasional cultural coincidence, and might more likely be seen as springing from an as yet unknown but universally shared depth of the human mind, and yet not confined to it. For these principles, if one is willing to accept the terminology of feminine and masculine, occur in varying forms throughout much of the natural world. Associated with what, what you might call the masculine principle have been um, active exploring transcendent traits, which are at best heroic or creative and splendid, reaching stars and ocean depths. And they are at worst dominating, exploitive, unheeding, and destructive. Associated with the feminine principle have Im been images ranging from the physical of urn, vessel, earth, moon, to those of fertility and creativity and imminence. A shadow side of these are passivity, manipulativeness, and destructiveness. It is this aspect of the feminine principle, the shadow side, that has been exploited to establish the man's world, woman's place that we have lived in for so long. 
And now it's, e it's, it's equally hard both to break that stranglehold hold, or to move, as one of my, uh, one of my feminist friends has said, on a, uh, on a pedestal. At its best, the feminine principle conveys nurturing, guarding, preserving watchful but not confining care, a connectedness with the ebb and flow of life. It is a feeling that this is too deep a part of many of us who have had children to be tossed off as an accoutrement of a masculine-dominated society, although that's certainly one idea that's, talk, uh, uh, that's tossed about or is claimed by feminists. They claim that it's used to keep us in our place, a stereotype. I know it's a part of me as a biological animal, and it may be the best part. In many cultures, these principles have existed in creative tension with some harmony between the, between the sexes and between human beings and their environment. I think we've had glimpses of this in some of the discussions and films so far. But the collective woes to which we now fall heir and which read like a, a litany from the beginnings of agriculture to the Judeo-Christian religion to the dominance of Cartesian reductionist dualistic thinking, imperialism and exploitation of Western capitalism, the whole bag, development of Western science and its offshoot, our runaway technology, all of these can be looked at in one way as an enormous imbalance, a disproportionate weight on the explorative, outreaching side of the human psyche, alienated from its roots in the natural order, which, run amok, has brought us very close to planetary suicide. In the closing circle, Barry Commoner said, we have broken out of the circle of life, converting its endless cycles into man-made, linear events, driven not by biological need, but by the social organization we have devised to conquer nature with means of gaining wealth that are governed by requirements conflicting with those which govern nature. The end result is the environmental crisis, a crisis of survival. Once more, to survive, we must close the circle. We must learn how to restore to nature the wealth that we borrow from it. Well, perhaps what is needed to close the circle, to balance the transcendent, is an adventure in imminence. That is why we should meditate, as well as sweep the temple. We need to find ways of learning again who and what we are, to find a centeredness or a sense of place in the larger order, and to do so, in a sense, in Evie Ames' words, is to rehonor the feminine principle. And even as this is passive in one sense, it has its complementary active aspect in what we're calling a biological metaphor and which I think is best expressed in Gary Snyder's image of computer technicians who walk with the elk for part of the year. At New Alchemy, underlying our work with food and in shelter, there's an attitude of watchfulness or listening to what the wind and the soil, animals and the pH of the soil, and the oxygen and the ammonia in the ponds have to tell us about our small ecosystems. To do so, we're using sophisticated sensors, small computers. This kind of work gives one hope that the imminental and transcendent are fusible and that out of such a fusion can restorative guidelines to help us in both our biological and our sexual dilemma. And because with time, in relation to clear-cut sex roles, we feel we're coming closer to a balance, we see in such a balance kind of an androgynous metaphor within the scientific paradigm. 
Okay, I want to go one step farther with this biological metaphor before I close. Uh, to extend it into an area which is really still largely speculation, but which is awfully interesting. Uh, Lynn Margulis, who is a biologist from Boston University, and a British scientist, James Lovelock, have put forth a theory which you probably just call the Gaia hypothesis, which is after the Greek Earth the goddess. And they're entertaining the possibility of viewing the biosphere as being comparable to a single organism, able to control at least the temperature of the Earth's surface and the composition of the atmosphere. This led them to the formulation of the proposition that living matter, the air, the oceans, and land surface, are part of a giant system, able to control temperature, the composition of the air and sea, the pH of the soil, and so on, as to be optimum for the survival of the biosphere. However, with the exponential increase in human interference in the biosphere, the natural distribution of plants and animals are rapidly being, being changed, ecological systems destroyed, and whole species are being altered or deleted. And the danger lies in this, ecologically speaking, I mean, I realize this is something we all know and intuit, but specifically ecological, ecologically, the danger here lies in the fact that any species or group of species in ecological association may contribute just that response to an external threat that is needed to maintain stability. This led Margulis and Loveless to ask the question as to whether, even as is obvious, our existence is dependent on Gaia, might possibly also Gaia need us in order to continue. As things have gone, might not humanity provide Gaia with the equivalent of a central nervous system, an awareness of herself and the rest of the universe? Through us, could she have a rudimentary capacity which would be capable of development to anticipate and guard against threats to her existence. Then could it be that in the course of human evolution within Gaia, we could have been acquiring the skills necessary to ensure her survival. If we did, it would be evolutionary irony. Whether or not this hypothesis will prove to have more than symbolic value, which it has a great deal, continuing male exploitation of both the earth and of women is well-grounded in fact. One path toward alleviating this is through an increased sensitivity to the demands of life, all life. Again, re-honoring the feminine principle. We have, in many words, the potential to transform the extraordinary relation of the poet to nature into the ordinary and normal relation, as it has been so often in other societies. Changing our environment from a culture of rapism to a culture of reciprocity with the beauty of the earth, the planets, the stars. This means we will look upon the earth and her sister planets as being with us, not for us. One does not rape a sister. The ecologist Paul Shepard said it another way when he said that affirmation of its own, if its own organic essence would be the ultimate test of the human mind. With this, then, I guess I'd like to close with what I think is a step in the right direction, which is suggested by another poet, Marge Piercy, in a rather marvelous poem called The Spring Offensive of the Snail. She says, yes, for some time, we might contemplate not the tiger, not the eagle or grizzly, 
but the snail who always remembers that wherever you find yourself eating is home, the center where you must make your love, and whenever, wherever you wake up is here, the right place to be, where we start again. Thank you for listening to the Lindisfarne Tapes. This podcast is brought to you by the Schumacher Center for a New Economics. For over 40 years, the mission of the Schumacher Center has been to envision the elements of a just and regenerative global economy, apply these elements in our home region in the Berkshires in western Massachusetts, and then develop the educational programs to share our results more broadly. To learn more about our work, visit our website at www.centerforneweconomics.org or find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Instagram. For more podcast content, check out our Schumacher Lectures podcast. To help strengthen our mission, you can make a donation at www.centerforneweconomics.org donate.